Hello and welcome back to the Christianese Overview of the Wisdom Books. This is part two, which you are totally free to listen to first, but if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to miss some things, like what are the wisdom books, how does God define wisdom, and a quick overview of the book of Proverbs. If you've already listened to part one, you know that the good life is found in God's wisdom, in living in his world, in his way, understanding how he designed things to work, and enjoying life and flourishing by building your life on that wisdom. And Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that when you trust God, revere his word, obey him, worship him, life will go better for you because you'll be living in the world in the way that he designed it. But sometimes when you read the Proverbs, they don't always seem to work. Sometimes you do the right thing and you get the wrong result. You do everything that God asked, but then life doesn't turn out the way that you expected. Proverbs said that wisdom would give us prosperity, vats of wine that were overflowing, But what if life instead hands us struggle? What if we get the unwanted and unexpected friends of trial and trouble who also seem undeserved? What then? What do we do, where do we go when the wisdom of God is not lining up with our experience? Maybe even seems to contradict it. This is the place where doubt seems to be more honest than any other voice in our life. But it's also at this moment when we need the unexpectedly kind and gentle wisdom of suffering. Welcome to Christianese, the wisdom books, part two, the struggles. In the last episode of this series, we learned that wisdom is learning how to live in God's world, in God's way, that it's more than being smart or having an answer for every question, it's understanding how God created us and the world to be. That's why many of the Proverbs are universally true. They work no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are, like Proverbs 10.12, hate stirs up dissension, but love covers all transgressions. But there are some Proverbs that seem more result-oriented, like Proverbs chapter 3, which says that wisdom is the tree of life, and in her you can find things like long life, peace, barns that are full, and vats overflowing with new wine. And those things are true. When you act wisely, you're going to handle your business better than if you act foolishly. Your relationships are going to be better. Your life will be more at peace. The problem is that we can look at these result-oriented Proverbs and start seeing life as a kind of puzzle, a series of tips, tricks, and rules that we need to follow in order to unlock the life that we want. But if you think God's wisdom is a kind of life hack in order to manifest the future that you want, you'll be disappointed when your life goes off of your script, thinking that something must be wrong with your own behavior, which creates guilt and shame, that something must be wrong with others which creates anger and strife, or thinking that something must be wrong with God, which turns us to look at our faith as a whole and to think, this doesn't work. If wisdom is just something that gets you to your desired future, then you will have no space to understand any kind of pain, suffering, or trouble, because it can only be a sign that someone has messed up. 
But Proverbs is not the only book of wisdom that we have. It sits next to and in conversation with two other books, the books of Job and Ecclesiastes, two books that explore the complexity of life, how we should understand suffering, and how we should relate to God when things don't go the way we want or expect. Because here's the truth, life is not going to go the way that you want it to, but our struggles, our suffering, our pain can all teach us something and change us to be more like Jesus. Here's how I think about it. Imagine that there's this sack of grain in front of you and it's bottomless. No matter how deep you dig into it, there's always more. But that sack is the only food that you can eat for the rest of your life. It's all you have to sustain you. How long do you think you could survive on that bag of grain? You'd have to, well, you'd want to protect that bag. Keep it away from the fire so it didn't burn. Keep it away from water so it doesn't rot and start to mold. You would keep it away from anyone or anything who threatened it. Now you might think because the bag is bottomless that you could survive on it forever, as is. But the trouble is, even though grain is extremely nutrient rich, our bodies have a hard time processing raw grain. Like, think of the corn in your Chipotle burrito. It just passes right through you. You could only survive on raw grain for maybe a couple of weeks before you passed away. But if you took that grain and you put it next to the things that you thought might destroy it, if you pulverized it into flour, if you mixed it with water and let it ferment, let bacteria get into it and break down its complicated proteins and minerals into digestible bits, and then you put it next to an open flame and let it cook until it became bread. That bag of grain could feed you indefinitely, not just for a couple of weeks. Even an infinite bag of grain is worthless unless it is crushed, broken down, and burned. Many of us have grown up in church knowing God's wisdom. But as soon as we encountered suffering, we started to think something was wrong. That God had abandoned us, that maybe he wasn't who he said he was, that our churches had just gotten it wrong. But could it be that suffering, the thing that made us question God, is actually the tool that God uses to turn grain into bread, to turn wisdom into something that can nourish us? And could it also be that God is less concerned with protecting us than he is transforming us? And that transformation best happens when we are crushed, broken down, and put through fire. Could it be that we've misunderstood suffering? Now, I'm not saying that we should seek out pain and suffering or become some sort of spiritual masochist. That's not the point I'm getting at. But one of the big problems in Western society today is that we don't know how to handle pain. We distract ourselves from it, avoid talking about difficult questions, chase after pleasure or power, or try to hold on to youth long after it's passed us by. Sometimes the church even avoids talking about pain becoming more concerned with providing a positive experience than showing us where God is when we struggle. Suffering is a topic that we work to avoid. But, thank God, literally, 
that he doesn't avoid it in Scripture. Instead, he's prepared us with the books of Job and Ecclesiastes to understand where he is in our pain, how we should go through our pain, and how pain can show us what matters most in life. Suffering is always an unwelcome guest, but if you're willing to listen to her, her presence is a gift. Let's start with the book of Job. Job is a book of deep philosophy, written in the style of epic poetry, but it begins as a narrative, and it starts in a place we don't often see, the heavenly throne room. Most depictions in this space are filled with worship, every creature and being focused on praising God. But here, it's a courtroom, and there's a character that steps in front of God, known as the accuser, Satan. And he looks at God and brings up Job, a righteous man, a faithful man. And Satan says, God, the only reason that Job worships you is because you bless him. If you were to take your hand off of him, he would turn against you in a heartbeat. And so God says, all right then, everything he has is in your power. Only do not extend your hand against the man himself. And so Satan leaves to afflict Job. And the question this book is setting us up to ask is why do we worship God? Do we worship him for his blessings or for who he is? How honest are we? The scene cuts to earth where Job, through a series of messengers, learns that he's lost everything. His livestock are gone, stolen or killed by raiders, his servants are gone, and all of his children are dead. So what does Job do? How does he respond to God? Job 1 verse 20. Then Job got up and tore his robe. He shaved his head and he threw himself down with his face to the ground. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. In all of this, Job did not sin nor did he charge God with moral impropriety. But Job's suffering is not over. Satan tells God that the only reason Job still worships him is because he is unhurt. And so God lets Satan afflict Job, as long as he doesn't steal his life. And so Job, a man who God describes as blameless and righteous, suffers like no man has ever suffered. And suddenly, the one question we're all asking ourselves is why? Why does this happen, not just to Job, but to anybody? Why does God let good people suffer? People who are righteous, people who are faithful, why do they endure such terrible things? These are the questions we might ask ourselves when we suffer. But for the next 36-ish chapters, Job doesn't answer those questions. Knowing what the right response is to God in the midst of suffering is helpful. But this book wants to give us the gift of understanding our suffering and of knowing where God is when we do. And to do that, it answers two questions. Is God just? And does the world operate according to his justice? First, we hear from Job's wife who says, God is not just and the world is unfair. Therefore, we should abandon God and live in our own way. She doesn't deny God's existence, 
but simply argues that he's not worth following. The next people who come to Job are his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they embody the best wisdom of their day. Their argument is that God is just and the world operates according to his justice. Therefore, any harm that comes to us is deserved. In essence, their view is karmic, that sin always begets punishment, and the worse you suffer, the worse your sins must have been. Job repeatedly maintains his innocence in front of his friends, but they don't believe him, eventually in chapter 22 making a long list of sins he must have committed, like refusing food and drink to the hungry, stealing clothes from the poor, or casting out widows. And finally, after his wife and his friends have all turned against him, Job turns to his friend Elihu, the only person with a Hebrew name in this poem, and Job breaks down. He says the world should be just, but it doesn't appear to function in a just way. I didn't deserve my suffering. I was a faithful man. I deserved better. Therefore, it must be that God has done something wrong. Now, the book of Job may be the oldest book in our Bibles, but the arguments of his wife, his friends, even his own rebuke of God sound a lot like the way that we talk about our suffering today. Many people turn against God like Job's wife, saying that suffering is undeserved, therefore I'm abandoning God. Many religious people look at suffering and blame the one who suffers, saying you've brought this upon yourself, offering them no compassion or any assistance at all. And many of us are like Job, who when we suffer look at God and not only ask, why am I going through this, but also look at God and say, this is wrong, you've messed up. those aren't the only responses to suffering. Elihu turns to Job and says, God is just, and the world does operate according to his justice, but suffering is not always a judgment. It's certainly unwanted, but our suffering may be a path to building faith and character. What if the helplessness and weakness we find in suffering actually makes us more dependent on God? And what if it turns us from foolishness and actually points us towards wisdom. When we suffer, we immediately go to something must be wrong, where Job's wife, his friends, and even he ended up. But just because we're going through an unwanted or unexpected situation does not mean that the world is not what God says it is. It is just as likely that when we encounter suffering, that the world is not what we think it is. Once Elihu is finished speaking, a great storm comes up, and out of that storm, that whirlwind, God speaks, and he's angry. God is not upset because Job had doubts. He's not upset because Job asked him, why am I going through this? God is angry because of the conclusion Job came to, that he must be in the wrong, and Job must be the one who is actually righteous. God's first question for Job is, where were you when I created the world? He goes on to ask Job 65 more unanswerable questions with one point. If we can't describe how God does what he does, we cannot possibly hope to plumb the depths of his mind and describe why he does what he does. God's defense is that I am just, but the way I have orchestrated the cosmos is beyond your understanding. When you read God's argument, 
the only response is humility. To put God on trial for wrongdoing is the height of pride because it assumes that we know everything that God knows and if we were in his place, we would have done it differently. But if we can't even understand the intricate web of causality that controls our own circumstances, then how can we possibly question the one who controls every circumstance? God then gives a second speech, displaying his care for and dominion over all of creation, describing two beasts, the behemoth and the leviathan. And the purpose of this passage is not to figure out what animals he's talking about, but to understand that some of the most dangerous, even destructive things in existence are still under God's control. No matter the chaos, God is still sovereign. The world is good, but it's not safe. It's ordered, but it's a wild place. And while beautiful, it will break your heart. The only reasonable response to a dangerous and chaotic world is to submit to the one who is in control of it. At the end of his suffering, God establishes Job as a priest, sent to intercede for his misguided friends Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz. Then God restores Job, giving him twice as much wealth as what he lost. Now that doesn't mean that suffering will guarantee us a fiscal reward. That's the karmic worldview of Job's misguided friends. If we look at the world the way God instructs Job to see it, then just as we can't understand why Job suffered, we can't understand why God was generous to Job. What we should notice at the end of this epic poem is not the reward, but it's that God in his wisdom, through suffering, has created a holy and humble priest who's able to endure every circumstance. Proverbs gives us the path of wisdom, but what Job shows us is that even if we're on that path, we cannot control our circumstances. But we can know the one who is in control of our circumstances and know that in any situation, if we trust God, that he can make us humble, holy people who can endure and withstand any circumstance. But this brings up an interesting question. If we cannot control the future, if our behavior doesn't dictate our circumstances, then why shouldn't we do what we want? Why shouldn't we let our hearts be our guide and do whatever feels right? What's the point of being wise? And that's where we come to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is kind of like a TED Talk. There's an author who introduces someone called the teacher, and that teacher speaks for the majority of the book, and then the author comes back and tells us how we should think about what the teacher has taught. We're not sure who the teacher is. Our best guess is maybe Solomon, but he's an older, wise person who's applied their wisdom to try everything in life to understand what it's all about and how we should live. And he sums up all of life in one word, Hevel. The teacher begins in Ecclesiastes 1-2, Hevel, Hevel, laments the teacher. Absolutely Hevel. Everything is Hevel. Hevel is a word that doesn't cleanly translate into English. It basically means smoke or vapor. But the teacher uses it in an unusual way. So some Bibles translate it as meaningless, others as futility, and some as vanity. But the teacher's not saying that life is meaningless. He's not a nihilist saying that 
because we cannot control life, that there's no meaning to it beyond that which we give it ourselves. He's saying the exact opposite. He looks at things like career, status, pleasure, wealth, all of the things that we use to try to give our lives meaning, and says those things are like chasing after the wind. That life is like a cloud of smoke. It looks like it has substance that you can put your arms around it, but as soon as you get to that thing, it just evaporates. It's Hevel. That in the end, all of our work, all of our accomplishments, even our names will be forgotten in time. That whether you're wise, foolish, rich, or poor, in the end we'll all die. So how should we then live? According to the teacher, you have to accept that you're not in control, that your life is not a puzzle you have to figure out, that tomorrow is something that you should hold with an open hand, because all of life is a gift. The teacher, a man who tried everything the world has to offer, says the best thing that we can do in life is to enjoy our friends, our family, a good meal with good wine, and a beautiful day because pleasure in these things is a gift from God. We're not guaranteed any blessings. We're not even guaranteed tomorrow. So when either one of those things show up, we can enjoy it. We can celebrate it rather than scrutinizing it for being not quite what we thought it should be. Life is a gift. Enjoy it. At the end of Ecclesiastes, the author returns and says, Having heard everything, I've reached this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will evaluate every deed, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's good to be wise. The way you live matters. But the way you live won't control tomorrow. That doesn't mean you should be anxious or worry about what's coming in your life, but rather that you should enjoy your life for exactly what it is today. That no matter what comes, more good times or difficult times, that God is still in control, that he's still your good father. That through your circumstances, he will transform you. Isn't it interesting that the one thing we protect ourselves from can teach us how to enjoy life? Thank you.